So last, uh, last week, if you were here or you want to go back and listen to it, I told you that we would have these online. They are online. It's just not as easy to find. So if you're interested in sharing it uh, with somebody else or you want to go back and listen to those episodes on our website, EbenezerBaptist.com, there is a listen uh, button that you can click, and then you can go down in our sermon archives. It's not video. It's just audio. Now, for some of you guys that know what podcasts are, how many of you know what a podcast is? We actually have a podcast channel, and uh, Caleb has uploaded that into the podcast. So if you go to the podcast app, and I'm trying to remember, you know what, let me look it up. I, I don't want to tell you something wrong. It's, it's not Ebenezer Baptist Church. If you go to Ebenezer Baptist Church, you will listen to Raphael Warnock. No, I'm serious. Like, if you search Ebenezer Baptist Church, that is the first hit you will get is Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. My other brother from another mother is Raphael Warnock. Um, or like, I didn't say I claimed him as a brother. I'm just saying he's my brother. Uh, what's it called? The Ebenezer Podcast. So if you go to the podcast app and search, and search it's called The Ebenezer Podcast. Uh, and you can find us um, on there and you can share that. So... Um, if you, I hope you have a study guide, because tonight we're going we're gonna to burrow in, but I really felt impressed that each week, last week I asked you a question. I asked you, who sat you down and taught you how to study the Bible? And if you were in my position up here looking out, I got very few nods, which means that either... A, I don't know how to study the Bible, or B, did I do something wrong? No. Oh, okay, see you. Or B, you, you kind of learned on your own, which then takes into account that, I mean, you might have haphazardly learned a method that doesn't work. And so I've kind of made it my goal, my sub-goal in, in our class is each week we're going to do some kind of an assignment to walk you through honing your skill in, in Bible study. Methods, the method of Bible study, is not singular. Like, there are different methods. I shared with you last week the method that I learned. Really, I learned it myself, and then I went to Dallas Seminary, and I was taught it there, and then I got a book, Living by the Book, by Prof. Howard Hendricks and his son, William, and it kind of refined it even more. In, 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 at Dallas Seminary, the reason I chose to go to Dallas Seminary was their, their focus, their, their, their catchphrase is, Kerudzantan Logon, preach the word. I mean, that's, that's their mantra. And so for my degree, my master's degree, I had 24 hours in Bible exposition alone. And the first 101 class is a class called hermeneutics or Bible study methods. So I had a full three-hour course in just how to study the Bible. Leland Reichen and all these other different, um, different people that were involved in, in the the development of that course in Dallas Seminary is 100 years old this year. And so, I mean, they are, uh, to me, a solid seminary um, in regard to training up ministers. Another set of classes we had was systematic theology, which was 18 to 21 hours. So my master's degree, I didn't take a lot of, there was no room for fluff in my master's degree. My 62-hour biblical studies master's degree was mainly those exposition and in the systematic theologies, and, and that, was a, that was core to what we were learning. So, we're going to do a, um, we're going to do, we're going to do something fun. Y'all do something fun? I want to do something fun. Um, 
So when I, when I enrolled at Dallas Seminary, I did so because of the quality and the character of the Institute's graduates. Can I name a few of those? Just so I want you to know why I went to Dallas Seminary. Because some of you are looking at me, well, why didn't you go, go on to New Orleans? Why didn't you go uh, to Southeastern or any of those places? Because I went up to a certain individual and I said, hey, where did you go to seminary? And he said, Dallas Seminary. And I said, well, why'd you go there? And he said, because it's the only one I know of. It wasn't the only one, but Chuck Swindoll, Chip Ingram, Tony Evans, Dwight Pentecost, Roy Zook, David Jeremiah, Hal Lindsey, Bruce Wilkinson are just a few of the men that, that went through that institution. You know a tree by the fruit that it bears, right? And every class that I took in the seminary was, was phenomenal. In fact, when I heard about Dallas Seminary, I was at the first Catalyst Conference. And back then, Catalyst Conferences were being hosted by Enjoy Group, which was John Maxwell's leadership development group. I'm at the first leadership conference. I'm green. I'm talking, guys, I'm talking, I was so green. I was like chlorophyll. I mean, I was green. And I'm sitting there, and they talk about this. Uh, Andy Stanley gets up and introduces Prof Hendricks. And this was before he had cancer, and they removed one of his eyes. And he got up on the stage with nothing in his hand. And he said, I'm going to tell you 10 principles of leadership today that will change your life forever. That was in 2000. And I'll never forget how he then began to exposit on, on qualities of leadership. And I couldn't write fast enough. And so when I was finished, I went up to Andy Stanley and I said, where is he a professor? And he said, Dallas Seminary. And I said, tell me what this is about. I'm telling you, I was so green. I didn't even know if seminary existed. And he said, there is no other seminary. So I got online and I did the application and I got accepted. And I was so, I was so pumped. I applied for my first class, and then I saw the bill, and I went, oh, my gosh. But I paid for every class, and it was well worth it. Now, there are other, other institutions. My other alma mater is, of course, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and I loved everything that I did there. But I love, I love to learn. And so through that process, I honed in on the, I, and you should see this in your study guide, just a basic method of observation, interpretation, correlation and application. In fact, we're going to see an example of correlation tonight because we're going to, we're going to hear about a group of people called the Nicolaitans. How many of you in, uh, encountered a Nicolaitan today? You didn't because there's no one with that label. That's what correlation is about, is going, okay, well, wait a minute. Are there people like the Nicolaitans? How do I learn about the Nicolaitans? What does the Nicolaitan mean today? That's what correlation is. That's why that, there's that extra step. The problem, like we talked about last week, is that people skip a lot of the steps to get to the application, and they miss the study part. It's kind of like Sherlock Holmes is famous for saying, you see, but you do not observe. So let me, let me give you a test, all right? And you can, you can jot these, these answers down. These are personal questions to see how observant you are. How many steps are in your house, either on your front porch or going up to your upstairs? I cannot check you on that unless I've been in your house. How many stop signs or lights did you pass on your way to work, school, or church? You can pick one. How many? I want you to think about someone close to you. When you saw them last, what were they wearing? are going, I'm getting in trouble. What was the subtitle of my sermon Sunday morning? 
Is your mother or was your mother right-handed or left-handed? And your father. If you are married or widowed, can you recall which side of, the, of your husband's face did he start shaving? And if you're a man, which part of your... Uh, let, me, let me rephrase the question. What type of makeup did your wife put on first? Where did she start? I'm going to have... Y'all, some of y'all going to be in trouble before you leave here tonight. How many miles has it been since you changed your oil? Or do you even know how many miles is on your car right now? What was the phase of the moon last night? All right, how'd you do? We failed, let's pray. (laughs) So, let me get us started. Um, So just go ahead and buckle your seatbelt up. I I am really seeing this as just, let's just get, let's just get nitty gritty, okay? When you and I start studying Scripture, we need to become great observers. Y'all like my new glasses? I'm going to apologize for the people in the back of the room that are young adults that I couldn't see last week. I got these online. It's the first time I've ever bought them from iDirect.com. They were 10 bucks. The lenses, well, it was 160 with the lenses. But you know how much they wanted to put lenses in my old glasses? $500. And I said, you're joking. But now, I can see Brian sitting in front of the Connection Center. Because when these are down, it's, kind of, it's not blurry. It's just fuzzy. Now things are crisp. And it's got this blue filter. Man, I have no excuse why I can't be observant. I mean, I'm being serious. Like, some of you are detail-oriented people. You notice everything. I kind of suspect, Rick, that you're a detail-oriented person. Am I wrong or right? Most of the time. Some of you, you don't even know what color socks you have on right now, and you can't tell if one's black or blue. So when we study Scripture, if we're going to be people of observation, we need to do what Psalm 119 Verse number 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. In other words, when I begin to study Scripture, I have to realize that the illumination of the Holy Spirit through the Scripture is a work of God. If I want to see what Scripture is saying and I want it to speak to me, not for me to go through proof texting to justify things in my life, that's why you don't study Scripture outside of context, Right? But if I want it, I need to start with praying. All right? So I pray. But then the second thing I need to do, and for, depending on what phase of life you're in, remove distractions. I was trying to read. I think it was last night. I had my Bible open. I was trying to read. And there was just conversational noise going on in the living room. I could not focus. So laugh at me. I shut my door, and I put my fingers in my ear. And I read out loud. Because for whatever reason, I just could not focus. And we have those moments. So remove distractions. But then you need to read and reread, including the context. Never, ever, ever, ever read a verse in isolation. Let me give you the example I've used before. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. People love to quote that to make it feel like that all the universe revolves around them. 
But do you know the context where God says to the Israelites, I'm going to send you off for a long time. No, he said, I'm going to send you off for 70 years. I'm going to punish you. What? That's the context. So when he says, I know the plans I have for you, those plans included punishment, not just blessing. So you see, we miss principle in that verse if we just look at it in its so, just by itself. We need the context. So read and reread so we know what we're reading. So let me give you, this week we're going to focus on observation. Let me remind you of the parts of speech. There are nouns. There are pronouns. There's verbs. That describes action. We have adverbs that will describe how a verb's being done. We have prepositions that can act in a prepositional phrase as an adverb or act as an adjective, either describing something or describing an action. We have conjunctions, joining different thoughts and phrases and things together. And then we have interjections. Y'all know what interjection is, right? Have you used that word lately? Like, wow! Awesome! Those are interjections. It expresses an emotion that's embedded within that. And so we want to remember those things. Parts of a sentence. Y'all are going to hate me. But you got to know. What is the subject of a sentence? What is the prepositions? What, I mean, prepositional phrases. What, we, we, we need to know these things and be able to identify them. Because, for example, when you were in grammar school, you probably learned what was called a simple subject. He ate. He ate. Who's the, who's the subject of the sentence? He. The dog ran. What's the subject? What's the verb? That's the predicate. And so you have simple predicates where it's like uh, Laura danced. You can have a complex predicate where the pilot flew the plane. All right, here's the quiz. What is the plane in that sentence? Come on, come on. Think about your grammar. What is the plane in the sentence? The pilot flew the plane. What's it called? It's called a direct object. That's right. Well, what's an indirect object? Usually it's someone that's the recipient of the action or, or something toward that action, okay? And so being able to identify those, and then you have modifiers, and you, you have adjectives. So do you, remember, do you remember what's called a predicate nominative? I am blue. That means I'm describing the subject, okay? All right, so, so there's all different kinds of things in here that we're, we're going to... We're going to, I want you to remember, and if you need a refresher in English, there's lots of resources that you can do that. Why would you want to do that? You know why? Because I want to be a student of the Bible. Now, I may not properly be able to, to label what is a part of a sentence, but I need to know how it functions. Like, I don't know, you know, how many of you have ever changed a spark plug? Does anybody, how many of you know that there's a spark plug on a car? Okay, well. You may not know how to change the spark plug or exactly how it works. You just know what's there, right? We just want you to know how these things are functioning and be able to kind of dig in and look at the words. So in your study guide, I've given you some, a blank. I want you to look in your Bible. And the reason I'm making you do this is because I've got a reason. I want you to look at Revelation 2, verse number 5. And the first thing I want you to do is I want you to write the verse. Now, it is printed below in... Did y'all get a graphic that I, that I hand-wrote on? Should have. If you did... Let me see. Can I see your study guide for a minute? Did it not print that thing? I'm having problems with it printing images. Well, you didn't get You'll see it in a minute. Revelation 2.5. That's right. I cut it out so I could keep it on two pages. 
I knew I did it for a reason. So I want you to first copy. No, 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 I'm good. I just I printed them and went into a counseling session. Cause I, so I just printed them and just laid them on my table and I couldn't remember. Now I'm going to have it on the screen here in a few minutes. But I want you to write. I want you to write it. And then what I want you to do in the other blanks provided is I just want you to make observation. Now I'm going to go ahead and give you a, 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 a warning. I'm going to let you guys share some of the observations you make. And I may tell you that's not an observation. You're interpreting I may tell you, nope, that's an application. I just want you to observe. For example, here's an observation in that verse. The word repent occurs twice. That is an observation, as basic as it can be. So write the verse so that you're absorbing the verse. And then I want you to just take a few minutes and make some basic observations. Look for the subject. Look for the nouns and the pronouns. and Look at the conjunctions. Look, look at the adverbs and just... When, when I was in seminary, in my hermeneutics class, we had our first assignment to go to Acts 1-8 and make at least 25 observations that were not interpretations. And all of us did the same thing. We were like, how in the world? But you can. So just take a few minutes and do that. Y'all want me to sing to you? No, I figured you didn't. As you're still observing, I, I, I misspoke a minute ago. A predicate nominative. I said I said adjective. I didn't mean to say that. A predicate nominative is a sentence. For example, like if I said, "Rick is the man," which he is. Man, you are the, you are the man. 
Rick is the man. It's when two nouns are set equal to each other with a linking verb. That's what a predicate nominative is. I just want to make sure I, uh, I jumped ahead of my notes and misspoke there. So I mean, still working. I actually put the verse up on the, on the wall if you need to, to reference it. But um, y'all good if I go ahead and just kind of jump in? Y'all can keep observing. Um, the verse. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Actually, in the Greek, it says first deeds. Or else I'm coming to you, which is present tense, and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, let me give you case in point. If we were just reading this verse and making observations, just a common reading of this would be like, oh, well, somebody went in their house and moved their lampstand from the table to, to the nightstand. How much does context bear in understanding this passage? What did we learn last week the lampstand represents? It represents the churches. All right, so let's make some observations. You guys say them to me. I've got to repeat them so we can get them on the recording. So just kind of sleep your hand if I point at you. Give me an observation. <laughs> You're afraid because I told you I'll call you down. If you, you're not wrong. I just want to keep it uh, observation. What you got? Yes. I have an NIV translation. So the mm-hmm. first sentence is consider how far you have fallen. Okay. So, so falling, falling is serious. Right? Okay. So, yeah, there's something seriously wrong here with the word fallen. Okay. I like that. You didn't draw any conclusion. You didn't make an application. Just said, you know what? There's an exclamation point next to the word fallen. That's an observation. Great job, Watson. What's that? It is used five times. And let me ask you a question because English is messed up. Is this you singular or you plural? How many of you think this is you singular? How many of you think this is you plural? You are wrong. This is you singular. He's referring to the church, inclusive, which is an observation too. So yes, the word you is used a lot, and the word you is singular. I wish I could tell you a way that you could see that, but you can't unless they put the word y'all in there. But this isn't the Southern, this isn't the southern Hick translation. <laughs> should, they should make a Southern Hick translation to put the word y'all in there. All right, what else you got? Yes, sir. Did y'all catch that? Three commands and a result. That's observation. Good, good. Like that, like that. And see, here's the beautiful thing about Greek is you know if it's a command because it has its own form. There's no question about it. It's what's called imperative. Like it has its, how many of y'all remember studying a foreign language? And you had endings to tell you the person and, and, and the gender and all those different things. I mean, that's. In Greek, there is, it's an imperative, and it tells you that it's an imperative. In fact, that one right, remember and repent, are both imperative. Just saying, do this. Remember is in present tense, and repent is in the aorist tense, or past tense. What else you got? 
Well, for time's sake, let me go ahead and fast forward here. Let me get to mine. I'll show you my image I was telling you about. I know you can't see it that well from there, but I marked right here, therefore, which is, a con which is making a, drawing a conclusion from previous information, which is what Jim just pointed out. You have left your first love. Therefore, that, I mean, there's the accusation. He says, remember from where you have fallen. This, is, this fallen is in perfect tense. It means you have done this. But remember, this is you singular. So the church has fallen. Y'all get y'all with me? This is, this is the church at Ephesus. The, the message to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And repent and do the deeds. The direct object is the deeds. You're doing the deeds. It's what you are doing. What deeds do you think those are? Well, apparently they're love deeds because of the context. Okay? Wow. All right. That you did at first, that is a descriptor. That's an adjective describing the deeds. And literally, it doesn't say the ones you did at first. It said first deeds. The first deeds. So... When did we first come in contact with the Ephesians? Well, you've got to go back to Acts 18 and 19 in Paul's missionary journeys to find out the interaction between the two or go back and read the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote to them as he was talking about the church. He, the, the book of Ephesians is about the alignment of the church, the purpose of the church, the, all those implications. Then he says, or else. Now, this one's, this one's pretty cool. Because, or else, literally means, but if not. I like that phrasing a little better. Kind of like, you, like when I was in church, if we acted up, my mom would elbow us and say, wait till your daddy get you home. But if not, this is the result. It's a conjunction here leading us to I am coming. Where is he going? This is talking about positionally to you. What did the end of chapter 1 say? Where was Jesus hanging out? Remember the image, the symbolism? He was walking among the seven lampstands. Remember what does seven mean? Completion and unity and perfect, uh, perfection. So he is going to come to them. So I kind of, I mean, symbolically speaking, he went over to that lampstand and will remove future tense what? Your lampstand out from its place. And there's the Greek if you want to chew on that one. I didn't put that one in there. Because in the Greek, like I said, it says if, it, but if not. But I like this ending here where it says unless you repent. Because it literally says if you do not repent. That's a conditional part of the sentence. If you do not repent, what will happen? Jim, you pointed it out. Now we're stepping into the interpretation part. We've observed the words, and now out of that, let me, let me give you my list of observations. The verses drawing conclusions to the previous verses about being accused of leaving their first love. Remember that the Ephesians had some prior knowledge of actions and deeds, they did it at first. The Ephesians were not in the same position as they were before. Wherever they are, they have fallen, and they've fallen hard. Because, if, as you said, the NIVs added an exclamation point to show the, the, the tension there. 
The command and recall to repent is important because it's appeared twice. When words appear multiple times, as, as, as you said, how many times? Five? Five times the word you has appeared in this verse. Then there's this, I called it a nugget, but, but if not, but if not, I'm coming to you. That implies promise. I haven't drawn any conclusions yet. And the I here is who? Who is speaking these words? If you have a red letter Bible, who's saying this? It's Jesus to the angel to give to the church. I love this. This is so awesome. The lampstands again represents the church's observation. The subject of these commands is second person plural. And then I just talked to you about how that conditional phrase, unless you repent. And the repentance here, he says, I want you to repent and do the deeds. So the deeds being done is going to reinforce the repentance. Are y'all following? So if I was going to do observation, uh, interpretation, uh, correlation, application, here's what I say. Lamp, stand, remove. That's my observation. Jesus, this is my interpretation, is sovereign over the local church. See, that's more than just observation. Yes or no? Is Jesus sovereign? I mean, he's sovereign over the church, but he's sovereign over the local church. I'm about to say something that's going to blow your brain out of the water in just a second. Correlation. We do not know where the church of Ephesus is today. Has anybody ever attended it? Has anybody ever been there? Does anybody know where it is? Is it a building? Is it a people? Has anybody heard of the church of Ephesus? I mean, because if I was the church of Ephesus and I was 2,000 years old, we'd probably know about it, wouldn't we? About the oldest church most of us might be familiar with is the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Right? I mean, that's the oldest one I can think of. The application then draws in the information the church should recognize, confess, and repent of corporate sin. You want to know my other interpretation? We don't decide if we're a local church. God does. And He determines that by whether or not He puts His Spirit inside that church. Now we, as we've been talking about in a series, we have been marked by the Spirit. That is actually the subtitle of my message this Sunday morning was the Mark of the Holy Spirit. We've been marked by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit then moves in me and through me. But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of churches that have steeples and they sit on the side of the roads and they're no more a church because God's removed their lampstand. See, I could preach that. It's not up to me. It's up to Him. And if God chooses to remove His lampstand, how can I stop Him? Because the truth, Jesus is sovereign over the local church. Y'all got any questions? Y'all want to let out early? Because I'm just kidding. We got, three, we got four churches to go through. Did that help or hurt? That's what I want to know. All right, what's the question? I think they can. He said, can a church ever get the lampstand back? What does this verse say they need to do? They need to repent. Which means I need to be humbled. And I've got to be unified. But yeah, I believe a church can get their lampstand back. Because really, if a church is growing, and it's growing because of human effort, is it a church? A church that's not built on the Spirit of God is not a church. That's deep, isn't it? Aren't y'all glad y'all are studying the book of Revelation? So in that line, let's just go to the jugular. So we're going to start tonight. Now next week I'll have another a nuance, some, something similar that we'll do together. 
to continue just kind of practicing. How do you get better at anything? You practice. And so, you know, this week we talked about just looking at the words. We'll do some observation next week. But each week I want to pile on something. I may show you some different methods. I just want to, I want to equip you. If you've never been equipped or you were equipped wrong, I just want to, I want to help us in that regard. And so we're at chapter 2. And chapter 2 and chapter 3 is, is the, the subtitles of these is going to be Letter to the Churches. Tonight's part 1. Chapter 2 contains the letters to four of the churches. Chapter 3 to three of these churches. Again, the number 7. What does the number 7 represent? Perfection. So is, is, is the church of Ephesus reading the church to Thyatira? Yeah, because he's speaking to the church inclusive. He's speaking to the church today. And so as we look at this map, let me remind you, here's Patmos. This is where John is writing. And the first church he's going to address in here is Ephesus. The next one is Smyrna. And then Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It works clockwise through this area of Asia Minor. Isn't that weird? John knew the region well enough to know, or at least the angel, what Jesus did. But it was a circuit. And the intention was for that letter to circulate and then go out from there. Because there's Antioch. And so he begins to address these churches. And there's, a, there's, a, there's actually, there's, there's a, I, I'm trying to think of how to best say this. There's a pattern that we're going to observe with each of the letters to these churches. He's going to address the angel that is the messenger to that church and call that church out. Each of the sevens, it's the same thing. To the church of Laodicea, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, right. It's formula. And then what you're going to see is they are going to reference back to the image of Jesus in chapter 1. That we talked about last week. Two-edged sword, fiery eyes, brazen, brazen uh, shoes, you know, all these different attributes that we study. We're going to go back. Each of these seven churches is going to highlight a different attribute of Christ. And then, and then what he's going to do is he's actually going to, to give them a, a, condem, a commendation. He's going to say, hey, look, this is what you're doing and it's good. Except the last church, Laodicea, does not get any points on the test. They do not get commended by Jesus. They are in the most trouble. Ephesus is not far behind them. But then after that, you're going to get a rebuke of the church. Except Smyrna and Philadelphia. They do not get rebuked. That's going to be followed by a piece of exhortation, a challenge, a command, instruction, and then a promise for the obedience. And the last thing that you will see in each of these letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see the beauty of the Trinity being expressed in these letters? God to the Spirit, to Christ, through the Spirit, to the angels, to the churches. God is at work. So one author said this, he said, Before analyzing each of the seven letters that follow, we should note that some of, their, of, the feet, of some of their features are as in a group. They are similar in that they are brief, 
They each contain a unique description of the Lord that Jesus is, that, that, that's drawing from chapter 1. Moreover, each contain a word of commendation, and each carries some rebuke for that congregation. And so from this, we're going to, to look and see some different attributes of Jesus. We're going to look at some case studies of what churches were doing that was pleasing to God, and we'll hear promises for, those, for that obedience. But when we look at them, I mean, some, some interpret, especially some prophetic teachers around the country, have attempted to try to take and make these seven churches all symbolic. To try to draw something like, I know I remember reading one time this guy wrote this book and he was trying to say like, well, the first church was from, from the first and second century and then the second church was this to this and then the Middle Ages was this. And y'all, y'all understand what I'm saying? Like they, they tried to fit a history into these seven churches. Can I just tell you the plain interpretation? These are seven churches that weren't doing what God wanted them to do except for one and he's instructing them. Remember, because there's two primary purposes of this book. To encourage them to persevere and encourage them to holy living. Right? We talked about that when we started the class. And so that's what he's going to do as he begins to unpack these. So, let me ask you a question. And we're just going to plow. Let me see what my next slide is. Yeah, we'll just go ahead and park our camper right there. Go ahead and open your Bible. to If you don't, if you don't still have it open, we're, in, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. But I want you to think about this. Do you find it hard sometimes or even hesitate to speak up about things in which you truly believe out of fear that someone might reject you or you might offend somebody? Do you find yourself hesitating to speak up in, in regard to truth because you're afraid you're going to make somebody mad? Does that, does that, you ever feel that way? You ever had an awkward experience in that where you... You know you, you know you needed to speak up, and then you, and then you went and you tried. I, I, have a, I, I won't tell you who it is in my family, but uh, they had a confrontation with a classmate one time because they were speaking up for the truth. But the problem was it wasn't what they were speaking up of, it was how they did it. It came across very shaming and condemning, and it blew up in, in her face. And so what I want to do is I want us to just jump right in here because that's kind of what's happening in some of these churches. Is they're being pressured by the culture in regard to truth. And so in your, just follow me in the outline. We're going to go through these four churches. And we're going to use um, what I just shared with you about. There's an opening. There's a, there's, a, there's a part about Jesus. There's a commendation. There is a, as a rebuke. There's an exhortation and a promise. And I'm, we're just going to feel like I've got plenty of blanks. Y'all ready? And I'm going to put them all up on the board one at a time. So let's start with the church in Ephesus. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. They get an A plus on truth. But you know what they get a an F for love. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. They get an A for truth and an F for love. Because he says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. And repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you. And will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this I ha- do have. Yes, this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. When was the last time we saw the tree of life in the paradise? What, what does that conjure back up in your mind? Eden. When man and woman were in perfect fellowship with God. So, when we, we dig into this, first thing I want you to see here, and you can go back to Acts 18 and Acts 20 um, to kind of see that by Acts chapter 20, Ephesus was a thriving church. They had established elder leadership by chapter 20 before Paul makes his journey to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested. So this wasn't just some mom-pop, we're just having some Bible studies here and there. This was an established gathering of people. So the first thing here, what we see in Jesus Christ, is that he stands in authority over the churches. It's not my church, it's his church. I'm just a part and therefore as a, as a member I belong to him. And so he commends them that there is a clear distinction between those, let me, oh, I'm sorry, here I go. There's a clear distinction between those who are following and not following Jesus. He says, you've put them to the test. Now, we don't know very much about the Nicolaitans, but it's suspected that they may be, con may be connected to Nicholas, who was one of the first of the seven deacons of Acts chapter 6. Made his way up to Antioch. But there was a group of followers, and this basically is what they were teaching. I'm saved now, and I can do whatever I want. I'm going to go eat all the meat that's sacrificed to idols. I'll go have sex with whoever I want to, because God's got grace to cover it. And so the Nicolaitans were indulging in their flesh. I, don't, I, can't, wait a minute, I can't think of anything going on in American culture right now where people are indulging in sexual immorality. Can you? I can't think of a single church in America that is even encouraging that. Can you? I mean, I'm sorry, we forgot our rainbow flag. I love the homosexual. But they would say, I don't. In fact, if you read the articles this week, some of you are like me. We are the most despised men on the face of the planet if you are middle-aged, middle-class, white, Christian male. And they would say, I can say, and it's probably somebody's listening in, I'll say, I love the person who is trapped in homosexuality. And I believe what they're doing is a sin. But if tolerance really existed, then they would be able to look back at me and say, well, I appreciate you for your stand. But that's not the way America works right now, is it? No, what they want us to do is to conform to that, and that's exactly what the Nicolaitans were doing in this context. They were standing against the truth. They were standing for the truth. The Ephesians were, but they had been so beat down, so labored that they had forgotten what Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Maybe they had started doing the works of truth and, and were so combative against the Nicolaitans and these other groups because they wanted everybody to look at them and go, oh man, y'all have got it all together. That's what happens in a lot of legalistic churches. They're doing all the things and checking the boxes, but they're treating people like they're trash. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And so that's the message that we see here. And so the rebuke, and what I want us to hear from this, is that doing the right thing for the wrong reason is wrong. If it's not motivated out of the love of God, willing to leave the 99 to reach the 1, yes, we need to take a stand for truth and, not or, 
And we need to be reaching out to those who are lost. We need to take a stand morally. And we need to extend an arm to those who we believe are outside of that. Not pushing them away, not browbeating them, not putting them down, not drawing a value against them because they sense that. Treating them different. We need to love them as Jesus loved them. How, did Jesus, how much did Jesus love you? He laid out his life for you. And so the exhortation here, I don't know what time it is. Oh gosh. The exhortation here is the correlation or the, the correction for a cold heart is to remember, repent, and return. If you're in this room tonight and you're struggling with a cold heart, it's dim. Remember where, from where you've fallen. I remember days in my early, early parts of my faith walk where, man, I was a fireball. But I also remember, as I shared with you before, those days when I was a jerk. I want that passion without being the jerk. You know what I'm saying? And so we remember, we repent, and we return. So here's the question I have for you. How do we individually and corporately maintain the delicate tension between truth and love? And what do we do as a church when we recognize as a church there's sin? How do we as a church collectively and corporately repent of that in the eyes of God? Because it's serious. How serious is it? Now remember Joshua chapter 7 and Achan's sin? Let me summarize Achan in three points. Achan, wait a minute, let me get this right. Achan shaken, Achan taken, Achan bacon. Some of y'all just got that because y'all know what happens to Achan. They lose to Ai, and Joshua's like, what did we do wrong? He said, well, somebody in your camp when y'all were in Jericho took stuff they weren't supposed to take. So they, they took, cast lots, and they found out, oh, it's Achan and his family. Then he was taken, and they burned him and his family and everything he owned. And we look at that and go, God, how could, a, how could a loving God do something like that? Because a loving God hates sin. And that was the judgment upon that sin. You want to know the judgment for the sin in your life? Look at the bloodstained cross. That was the judgment. And he's withholding his wrath now until he comes back. And that's what we're going to read about at the end of the book, right? Thank God he's holding his wrath back. Thank God I don't get what I deserve, you know? And I think it's something we need to keep in mind. So the promise for obedience, in renewed love, believers will have full fellowship with God as Adam and Eve did in Eden. Wouldn't you love that? Where he, where he walks in the garden with us, we'll be with him physically. We can talk to him. For him who overcomes, that's the promise. So let's go to the next one. Let's see what time it is. Can we make a promise? Will you go home and read the rest of this chapter? Because y'all want the blanks. Because the blanks are good. I promise you. Let's look at the church in Smyrna. I'm going to kind of read through it. So he says in verse number, uh, at the end of verse number 8, to the first and the last who was dead and has come back to life, I know your tribulation, your poverty, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Who did he say was going to do it? Kind of like in Job when uh, uh, the devil was given permission to go, to go do all those things to, to Job, do everything but kill him. He said, so that you will be tested. 
and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Guys, I think it was literal 10 days. I think he was warning them, you better put your big boy pants on. It's going to get bad for about 10 days. He said, but be faithful unto death. That one bothers me. There was no squishy feeling about that statement. But Jesus didn't make that in absence. He's walking among those lampstands, right? That means that through the Holy Spirit, he's present with him. He said, if you, if this is going to go so far that you're going to die, I'm going to be with you. And he says, but I will give you the crown of life, the reward. He says, but he who has an ear, let him hear. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And it's the first time in the New Testament we see that phrase. We'll see it again at the end. So let's go through these. What we see about Jesus here, I, hey, I'll make, a, I'll make a pack with you. Let's just do three churches. I'll kick, I'll kick the fourth one to next week. Deal? You want to shake on it? Okay. Resurrection and eternal life are certain in Christ. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. The first and the last is standing there before him, and he's back to life. And if he can, has eternal life, then he can give it to me. These people were about to die for their faith. You see that? Be faithful until death. So it matters that they, they, they proclaim Jesus as the resurrection. So he commends them that they remained faithful and pure despite their situation. Where Satan was actually testing them. And God in his sovereignty, even though he allowed Satan to test them, was still sovereign over that. And was not the origin of the evil of Satan. That is the hardest truth for us to wrap our head around, is that God can be good and sovereign, but Satan be allowed to do what he does. But there's coming a day, folks, where Satan will be cast into the permanent lake of fire. Satan doesn't go in and out of hell. He's here. Hell is not his home yet. I don't care what Tom and Jerry said. Y'all remember that episode of Tom and Jerry where Tom goes to hell and he's trying to do good. He goes up and trying to get Jerry to sign this pact and Jerry won't sign it. And so he ends up staying in hell. I remember that cartoon as a kid that gave me creeps. But Satan's not going back and forth. His home is not hell yet. He's going to Gehenna to eternal fire. And unfortunately, those who don't know Christ are going to follow with him. Sobering, isn't it? Because he said that if you will endure, you will not face the second death. What is the second death? Well, we can't understand that without the context of the whole book. The second death is that lake of fire, eternal hell. Separation. They get a pass. There's no rebuke. They're a little bit better. Yeah, doing a little bit better. But here he says this exhortation, have no fear. Well, it's easy. It's easy to read, harder to apply. We were talking earlier about the beach and why we do or do or do not go to the beach. And someone confessed, well, I don't go to the beach because I'm scared of sharks because I watch, watch Jaws. And I said, well, me too. I hate sharks as well. But I'm also the idiot who watches these reels of sharks. Like I watched one the other day and this guy was fishing in, in South Florida in, in salt water. And like he caught a fish and he, he let it go. And then he reached down and just, I mean, he's in, he's in like mangroves. And it was go, go, went to wash his hand, and a shark grabbed his hand and pulled him into the water. It wasn't a big shark, but it was enough for him to fall. You're like, mm-mm, I ain't going there. But, I mean, all he was doing was washing the, the fish oil off his hand. But it's, he splashed, and that shark was ready. 
I mean, but, but for somebody to tell me, well, you can go in the ocean and not have fear. I know I can go in there and not have fear, but I do. But do you know what we have in the midst of fear? We have courage. And why do we have courage? What's the worst thing that can happen to anybody in this room? Death. But who did they just describe Jesus as? The first and the last. The one who was raised from the dead. If death takes me out of this world, it's not my end. Y'all see that? And so the promise here is that the faithful ones will receive the fullness of life that's in Christ. James 1 chapter 12 says this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to him and those who love him. So let me jump on to, to Pergamum. Like I said, we'll just do this one last church, and I'll bump uh, church number four to next week. Let me read. It says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell. Now, this one gets heavy. Where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I do have this, a few things against you. Because you have, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Y'all remember the name Balaam? Anybody remember the name Balaam from the book of Numbers? He was the one that Balak calls to... To come and prophesy and speak against Israel. And on the way, he's riding a donkey and he keeps hitting the donkey. And the donkey says, hold up, bro. That's my interpretation. He says, who is teaching, listen, who kept teaching Balak to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel. How did they do that? They were inviting them to come have parties and flashing their women in front of the Israelite men. So the Israelite men would have sex. There's always something about sex in these things. I'm sorry. To have sex with those women, the Moabite women. And because of that, then that would cause God to remove his blessing off the Israelites and hopefully they would lose. That was the strategy. That was, that was Balaam's influence. That was Balak's strategy. Is let's get them to sin and God remove his hand like he did with Ai. And then we might can, have a, a cha- we might can overcome them and challenge them. So he goes on to say... To, uh, to eat things, this is what they were doing in the church in Pergamum, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who are in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's that word again. But remember, they were the ones that were claiming faith, but they were like, well, it's a no holds bar. I just do whatever you want to. Therefore, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly. Same statement he made to Ephesus, right? And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows but him who receives it. And so let me, let me quickly give you these last points here. Jesus Christ is the righteous judge. He is the righteous judge. He is the one who can make the judgment. And what's... What's interesting here with this church is it's fascinating because they're similar in some ways to where Ephesus was. But this church was the center, one of the centers of imperial rule, the center of pagan cults, and there was a large library there that was, only, it was second to only the church in Egypt, Alexandria. 
And it also was the center of where they made parchment for people to write on. A lot of people came to this city. But here's how they were commended. They were remaining steadfast in faith to His name. There was activity, satanic activity, all around them. In fact, one, one guy said this about Antipas. Remember he said, Antipas, my, my servant died? He said, Antipas is said to have been a dentist and a physician, but someone suspected that he was propagating Christianity secretly, and they accused him of disloyalty to Caesar, which, remember what we talked about last week? They worshipped Caesar, so he went to Caesar and said, this is what he's doing. He was condemned to death. Anytime there's something satanic, it's just weird. And they shut him up in a brazen bull, and it was heated until it was red hot, and he died. They burned him to death encased in a brazen cow. I mean, you're looking at me like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. It was satanic. You see, what happened there was they were buying into the lie of cheap grace. Jesus is fully truth and fully grace. If you remove the truth, you know what you have? Cheap grace. If you remove grace with no truth, you have a dictator. But because he's both and we stand in front of the presence of a holy God condemned in our sin, but a God who fully loves us. And what they were doing in this church was cheap grace. See, they had the, they had the love part without the truth. Ephesus had the truth part without the love. And so, this rebuke, uh, one author says this, the main facet of the doctrine of Balaam which was being promulgated in, the, in churches today is the teaching that future blessings and rewards have been set aside for every Christian solely on the basis of just the finished work. Thus, Christians, regardless of their conduct during the current time, will receive all kinds of stuff when they get to heaven. That's not how the beam of seed of Christ is going to work. And so they're exhorted, because we've got to wrap this up so y'all can go get your kids and go get something from Dairy Queen. I don't know, wait a minute, what's the temperature right now? The temperature is a balmy 33 degrees. So it is okay to get a blizzard, because it's only, I mean, there's one degree above freezing. There are temporal and eternal judgments for failing to repent. What do I mean by that? A temporal judgment is that I face the consequences for what I do here and now. I remember back in the 90s stories of, of men who, who contracted AIDS, came out of the lifestyles they were living in, but the AIDS was still with them, and they died of that disease. That was a temporal consequence for something that was done. I'm not talking about everybody who contracted AIDS. I'm talking about more in the sexual immorality aspect. But eternal judgment. Is the one that scares us and should scare us. That future judgment where those who don't know Christ will be cast into that lake of fire. You see, because of this, one, one author said it's the unwillingness to repent shows that a person is not a faithful believer. In the, in, in the confrontation of my sin, if I'm unwilling to repent, to turn away from that and ask the Lord His forgiveness, I'm showing I'm an unfaithful believer. I don't pursue my sin because my holy God has called me in a different direction. If I tell the holy God, 
well, I don't care what you think, then am I really a believer? Have I really entrusted my life to the hands of the sovereign crown? I haven't. So the promise for obedience here is our relationship with God comes with, a, with blessing. The stone, back then you would receive a stone to go into certain uh, feasts. And sometimes in, in the pagan side of that, they would, they would write a secret name of a God on it. that was only known to the person to whom the stone was given. But what we see here is that now we get a stone and an invite, but we get a new name. Abram was, was, was changed to Abraham. Jacob was, turned, was, was changed to Israel. Based on what? Based on the covenant and the promise God made with them. And so, the, oh, wait a minute, was there not a, yeah, that was it. So let me skip over here. I'll give you those next week. So here's the questions that I want you to chew on for application. The lesson from the church of Ephesus, how can you stoke your love for Christ? How can you rekindle your love for Christ? What did he say in there? Remember where you've fallen. Repent. Right? And be restored. Smyrna. How do we stand under such satanic pressure? How do we stand? Well, let me give you one way. Connect in your church. You're here tonight. I'm so thankful. But if anybody in this world thinks that they can do Christian life on their own, they are a fool. Because you cannot walk the Christian faith by yourself. You need people around you. Like-minded people. to hold, Not to hold you like a police and make you that kind of camera. I'm talking about just to encourage you and walk with you. And the last one here is what do I do to resist subtle temptation? Remember, the problem there was is that they were kind of becoming just kind of, uh, we're just kind of letting this happen. Temptation is, is a slippery slope. We let little things in and little things become big things. But what do you have? What kind of things do you have in your life that helps you? Maybe on one, maybe on one end of our stretch, we've got guys in this room, you, you struggle with sexual immorality or pornography or things of that nature. What, what, what do you have in place to help you with that? But maybe over here, let's go to this other side because we think that gossip sometimes is sanctified sin. What do I have in my life, either in my friend group or my family group, that helps me when I start running my mouth too much? Y'all following me? Because this is a sin as much as this is a sin. They both cut me off from the life flow. And what we'll begin to expand on Sunday morning, we're going, we're going to pick up that, that, that concept of the filling of the Spirit. I mean, like if I'm a Christian, I'm filled with the Spirit, but I may be filled this much or this much. When I get down to this, what do I do to refill that tank? How, how do I tap in to the presence of the Lord so that I'm filled to the full? And so... Chew on those questions this week. Y'all got any questions before we leave out here? I'm only five minutes late. And we still got one more church to cover. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this night. And uh, Lord, this is a lot to take in. Uh, but we, I love it. I hope that they love it as much as I do. What, what I want them to do is love your word. I want them to crave your word. And that even in the sometimes the messed up ways that humans speak, Lord, let it still uh, bring glory and honor to your word, your name. In your son, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good week. See you Sunday.